very early this week, I realized that it was feeling increasingly silly to speak on anything other than a matter, the matter that is unfolding around us. And so I think God led me in my thinking and planning, and uh, we are going to speak, or I'm going to look at with you, a verse in 1 Peter. You can open your Bibles if you have a Bible with you. Uh, asked Juanita to put the sign out and so people in the community would see that, that we were going to talk this morning about finding peace in the midst of a pandemic. And so any from our community joining us, either here present with us or online, glad that you can be with us. want to share this morning words from the Lord Jesus, words from God to us that speak into the situation. In the year 165 A.D., a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. Uh, some historians suspect that it was the first appearance of smallpox, but regardless of what it was, it was terribly lethal. Over a period of about 15 years, the duration of the epidemic estimates put death, death uh, toll somewhere between 25 and 35 percent across the empire, a huge number. Even the emperor, Marcus Aurelius, was counted among the dead, succumbing to the virus in 180 A.D. About 70 years later, in the year 251, another epidemic swept across Rome, hitting both rural and urban areas, hitting them hard. Uh, probably the first appearance of measles, which can cause massive mortality rates when they strike a previously unexposed population. Hans Zinzer, a historian, writes this about the epidemic, uh, about the impact of these epidemics. He says, Again and again, the forward march of Roman power and world organization was interrupted by the only force against which political genius and military valor were utterly helpless epidemic disease. And when it came, as though carried by storm clouds, all other things gave way. And men crouched in terror, abandoning all their quarrels, their undertakings, their ambitions, until the tempest had blown over. I think these are credibly fitting words, relevant words for us to reflect on at a time like this, a time unlike anything any one of us have ever experienced in our lives. The coronavirus first surfaced in December, December 1st, 2019, three and a half months ago in Wuhan, China. Uh, two months later, I got on an international flight, flew to India. Uh, I remember reading about the story, but it was just a story that was localized. It was a story about what was happening over there. And I really didn't worry about it through the duration of my trip. But all things, all these things have changed and changed quite rapidly over the last several weeks. This this week, the World Health Organization declared this a pandemic, meaning that the disease has now spread to over a large region globally, and that it was no longer able to be contained. Simply, efforts could be made to mitigate it, to slow its spread. And in, in light of this declaration, in light of what we see unfolding all around us, governments, organizations, businesses, churches, and individuals are scrambling to discern the right way to respond. How do we live? 
How do we respond? How do we help slow the spread? What can we do? I know I have never, and trust that you have never seen anything like this. It was a little surreal to walk into grocery stores, and I chuckled for much of the week, but seeing the shelves where toilet paper should be gone, just thinking, wow, this is, this is interesting. These are interesting days. This morning I want to reflect with you on a question. The question is, how should we respond? How do we as followers of Jesus respond in a time like this? What is it that Jesus would have us do? And how does God's word speak into a moment in history, a moment in our lives such as this? So over the next few minutes, I want to uh, dig into a single verse that we encounter in 1 Peter. But I want to provide a little context before we do that. Uh, Just about this letter, this letter of 1 Peter that we find in the New Testament. Peter H. Davids writes this, 1 Peter is a highly relevant book wherever the church is suffering. Now, don't take from that that in any way I believe that this coronavirus is simply uh, causing the church to suffer. That's certainly not the case. Or that the church is suffering any worse than anyone else. I'm not suggesting that for a moment. Simply want to draw your attention to the fact that 1 Peter wrote this to believers who were living in difficult times. And in as much as that was true then, that is true now. We, along with all those around us, are living in difficult times. Peter wrote this to believers who were either beginning to experience great suffering in the Roman Empire or were on the very edge of impending suffering. Tradition says that Peter, the disciple of Jesus, uh, stands behind this letter, probably with the help of his companion Silas, They penned this to believers who lived on the coast of the Black Sea in what is today the country of Turkey. Uh, Likely written around the mid-60s, 64 AD, before a great persecution against Christians under Roman Emperor Nero began. Peter's goal was to encourage, to exhort believers to carry on, to be encouraged in the face of approaching suffering, and Uh, He had much to say that was really practical about living as a Christian in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty. It is a profoundly relevant letter to Christians when they are suffering. And so, as we move into this season of unknown, this season of difficulty, there is much here that I would encourage you to read and listen to the Spirit of God as you read this book. This morning, we're simply going to focus our attention on one verse, Towards the end of the letter, we come to it, verse, chapter 5, verse 7, where here is what we read, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I want to do three things with you this morning. First, I want us to dig into this verse. There's actually a lot packed into this single verse, so we're going to unpack it for a few minutes. Secondly, I want to spend a little bit of time reflecting on what Scripture says about anxiety, about worry, and about our lives as Christians. The Bible speaks into these kinds of realities. And third, I want to reflect with you on some practical implications for what Jesus is calling us to do in the midst of this time in our lives. So first, let's look at this verse. I want to highlight this reality. The Bible is a profoundly realistic book. 
It is uh, realistic in so many ways. We can often approach it uh, with wrong expectations, but I want you just to, to hear and reflect on uh, two statements that we read on the lips of Jesus. Jesus says in John, uh, John's Gospel, he says, In this world you will have trouble. Uh, that's a profoundly realistic statement. Often we can think that if we put our faith in Jesus, everything's going to go well. We can often approach Jesus like he's some kind of cosmic divine vending machine. I will live for you and you give me the things I want. But to think of God like that is thinking of him as a genie. And scripture does not make those kinds of promises. And so when we live with those kinds of expectations, we are failing to listen Accurately to God's word. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble. Jesus also said in the Sermon on the Mount, each day has enough trouble of its own. What does that mean for us? Well, it means that the trouble of tomorrow or the trouble of next week is trouble that we, we, we don't need to think about, worry about. And our context certainly calls for wisdom, but he says each day has enough trouble of its own. There is no promise in Scripture that our lives here on earth will unfold without trouble, that things will all go well, that, that things will go the way we hope they, they will. The Bible is also profoundly realistic when it comes to the things, the emotions that we will experience as human beings. I've often said this, the book of Psalms was the book of a book of prayers for God's people, and if you read through the Psalms, you will discover within it every human emotion. We, we learn to pray and to be honest with God about uh, our struggles, about our fears, about our feeling like He is a million miles away. And, and we, we learn to celebrate and express our joy and our gratitude because God has made us to feel a whole host of emotions. They don't surprise Him. To be human is to experience a whole host of emotions, even the, motion, the emotion of worry or anxiety. And so... It's interesting, is it not, to note here that Peter does not say, you better not have any anxiety. He does not say, if you do have some anxiety, shame on you. Snap out of it. He doesn't say, if you feel anxious, pretend at least that you don't have anxiety so no one sees that. He doesn't say any of those things. Nor does he say, there is nothing in this world that could ever cause you anxiety. That's not what we hear in this text or elsewhere. We, we read here, cast all your anxiety on Him. There is this profound uh, uh, realism here. Peter knows, God knows that there will be experiences in life that cause us to feel this. That cause us to feel anxious. We will recognize suddenly, we'll have an experience where we realize that we are not in control, that, that we've been living with somewhat of an illusion. About 14 years ago now, I went on my first international trip. I had never been outside of Canada or the States. It happened fairly quickly. I was at a luncheon at Missions Fest. The guy sitting next to me I'd never met before, he said, hey, do you know someone who wants to go to Africa? And I foolishly said, wow, that sounds interesting. Not foolishly. I shared it with the board. The board said, yes, you got to go. This is a great opportunity. And six weeks later, I was on a flight to the other side of the planet. I had three little boys, five, three, and one at home with my wife. And 
And I loved, I still love, the opportunity I have as a dad and a husband to care for my family, to try and protect them and care for them, serve them. And that experience put me far, far away. I'd never been that far away. And if I'm honest with you, I I need to share that that trip was a, a trip filled with a fair bit of anxiety for me. It exposed something within me. I mean, before I left, Calvin, our four year, five-year-old at the time, uh, said to Chrisline, and she passed this message on to me, he, he asked her, Mommy, could, could Daddy die in Africa? That was a sobering thing to hear from my little kid. To fly into a part of the world that wasn't all that far away from some significant conflict and wars. To be so far away, so far removed, to realize that, okay, not only could something happen to me, but... If something happens to them, I I can't do anything. And it just really exposed for me the lack of control that was true all the time. But when I was nearby, I could live with this illusion that somehow, if something happened, I could protect, I could fix, I could help. I remember some nights staring up at the moon, feeling so incredibly far away, so utterly helpless. And God taught me through that experience that I had to trust Him. And and that trusting Him didn't mean that I made it home. Trusting Him didn't mean that everything went well. I had to trust Him because I could do nothing. The Bible is profoundly realistic. God knows that we will face troubles. God knows that in the face of those troubles, we will experience, at least at moments, anxiety and worry. And here he speaks to us in light of that reality. He invites us, he urges us to cast all our anxiety onto him, onto Christ. Which leads us to the second thing I want to highlight in our text. called to cast this onto Christ. What does that mean, to cast? A number of years ago, I decided that I wanted to learn uh, to fish, and I wanted to teach my boys to fish. Now, I'm still learning. I'm very green. I'm still very much a rookie. But we bought some fishing rods. We bought some lures and some bait. And we drove up north. And, and uh, I, I learned to bait hooks. And, and for much of the time, that's all I did. I had to bait everyone's hook because no one wanted to touch the bait. And then we learned how to cast our lures, I guess. Is that what you call it, casting your lure? You don't cast your rod. But anyways... Uh, we learn to cast, and uh, that's a process. You know, casting, you want to you throw that lure, that bait, w- way off into the water, far away. It didn't always unfold that way. Sometimes it got stuck on a jacket or on, on the back of the boat. But over time, me and my boys and my wife, we, we learned how to cast, and it was always really exciting when you, you'd cast it, and it would go far away. Jesus says through his word, cast all your anxieties on me. To, to cast, it, it means not just to throw, not to throw away, but the, the word here in the original translated to cast, it, it means to throw upon, to, to cast upon. It, it, it carries the, the meaning of put the responsibility for on. We are to cast upon Christ our anxieties. We are to put the responsibility for the things that we are worried about on Jesus. We're we're to cast it on Him. Jesus is inviting us. He is urging us to put 
the responsibility for those things that are causing us anxiety onto him. To say to him, Jesus, this is your baby. Jesus, this is your thing. We are not in control. We cannot fix this. You are the one who is responsible. You are the one who is in control. Doing this is the fruit of realizing what is, in fact, always been true, that we, we really don't have control, despite the fact that we may sometimes live with that illusion. God is sovereign. God is the Alpha and the, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He holds all of history in His hands. And so casting our anxiety on Him is to say, God, you, you've got this. This is yours. This is not mine to fix. This is not mine to control. This is yours. Third, we are invited, we are urged to cast all our anxiety onto Christ, Peter writes, because He cares for you. This is the amazing message of the Bible, that the God who made all things, the God who stands above all things, cares for you. He cares for me. He, he, he is not far away. He is not disinterested in what we are experiencing. He cares for you. He cares for me. He cares for all of humanity. God loves. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. World there doesn't mean earth as in planet. Uh, the world means humanity in rebellion against him. God so loved the world. God so loved all of humanity that he sent his son, that God put on flesh and came to earth in order to launch a rescue operation. God became man in Christ, and he lived the life that we were called to live. He obeyed the Father perfectly. He lived a holy, obedient, righteous life, and then he bore our penalty. He went to the cross and suffered the penalty that you and I deserve out of love for us. God the Father so loved us that He sent Jesus. Jesus willingly came to lay down His life in our place in order that through faith in Him we might be redeemed. We, we might be rescued. We might be made alive, truly alive, eternally alive. Forgiven. Accepted. Adopted as His daughters and His sons. Welcomed into His loving arms. Cast all your anxiety onto Him because He cares for you. In the midst of the unknown, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trouble, He cares for you. He cares for me. He has promised us that He will never leave us nor forsake us. And in light of that, we can face an uncertain tomorrow with confidence, with peace, I want us to shift our attention and, and think about what uh, so a few other things that the Bible says about anxiety in our lives. I, at, at one point in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says or asks this penetrating question Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? The answer is obvious, but it's an important question to reflect on. In moments like this, when we are tempted to worry, in moments like this, when we are 
uh, we, we just feel anxious because we recognize that we're out of control of things, that we can't fix what's going on, that we don't know what tomorrow holds. We, we are tempted to feel anxious and to worry. And, and Jesus asked this question, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Now the answer to that question may not make, you, make us feel good, but the answer is obvious, we can't. Worrying will accomplish nothing, nothing productive, nothing good. You and I are powerless to even do such a small thing as that. The Bible tells us, God speaks to us through His Word and, and reminds us that our lives are fleeting. In James 4, James confronts some in his audience who are making these plans and, and really making them with an arrogance he charges them with because they are making them without uh, paying attention to God. He says, why, do you, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. They're making all kinds of business plans in that context. But why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. He reminds us, uh, one, that life is fragile, that life is transient, and, and that we are not in control of those things, that our lives are in God's hands. And he says that we need to pray, we need to plan, saying, if it's God's will. That's not some religious cop-out. That's just simply saying that our lives are in God's hands, that we don't control it. We can't extend our life an hour or even a minute. Our lives are fleeting. This life will end for all of us in death unless Christ comes back. In Job 14, we read, A person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. God has determined our days. For you and for me, for every one of us, our death day is established by God, and we cannot, by worrying, extend it, change it, impact that. Now, as I said already, trusting God does not mean that everything in life will turn out the way we might hope it would turn out. It is trusting in His goodness. It is trusting in His promises. That, that one day all things will be set right. That one day we will experience an, a, a quality of life that right now we cannot even fathom. That is a glorious life in His presence where there is no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. See, worry is unnecessary and it is useless. Worry will not accomplish anything good and it's not necessary because God is good. God has redeemed us if we put our faith in Him and we are secure, we are loved, we are cared for. We are utterly invincible until Christ calls us home. There is nothing to worry about when we realize the truth that Scripture proclaims. And so we can face tomorrow and say, if God wills, we'll make it through this. And if God wills something else, God is good and I can trust Him. I need not fear. I need not live with worry and anxiety. Th though the context was different when C.S. Lewis wrote these words, I want to read to you an extended quote he wrote this 72 years ago. The threat at that time was the atomic bomb, not the coronavirus. And so as I read this, every time I read atomic bomb, I want you to, in your mind, replace it with the coronavirus. It's an extended quote, but I think it's worth reading. Listen as I share it. In one way, we think a great deal too much 
of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night. Or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madame, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in an unpleasant way. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics. But we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made, he writes. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts. Not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. They need not dominate our minds. Well, obviously, the threat of an atomic bomb and the threat of a, a virus like this call for some different responses. There are responsible things, wise things to do for us in this time to try and help mitigate the spread. But Lewis's point is, I think, of profound importance. We can let this fear dominate our lives in a way that is unhealthy. Or we can choose to act wisely and trust God and, as he said, do some sensible human things, even if differently in this season because of the threat that our world is experiencing. So what are the practical implications for us? We are called by God to cast all our anxiety onto Christ because He cares for us. Because He loves us, because He has redeemed us, we are secure in Him. Worry will accomplish nothing but rob us of the present. And so in light of those truths, what are we to do? How are we to live? Now, obviously, as I've already alluded to, there are many practical things to do. We've tried to guide us in doing some of those things this morning. I'm not going to get into those sorts of things. There are people far wiser than me who can, uh, can guide us in those practical steps. I want to speak to other matters. I want to fix our eyes on the opportunity that Jesus is opening up before us. Two specific practical implications for how we as followers of Jesus should live. And the first is this, that, that we can live as women and men, as children and teenagers, as young and old, as people whose lives are permeated with peace. We are loved. We are forgiven. We are accepted. We are adopted. 
We are secure. Death has been defeated, and so we need not live in fear. We need not let anxiety hold us hostage. When we have those moments, we can cast again our anxiety onto Christ because He cares for you, and that makes all the difference as we face each new day. In the midst of uncertainty and with a deep and abiding peace in Christ, we can face tomorrow. A peace that the Bible describes as surpassing all understanding. Now, please understand, this is not a peace that says... I'm young enough or healthy enough that this isn't really a threat to me. It's not a peace that comes from uh, you thinking, hey, I've got a really good chance of making it through this. It's a peace that says no matter what happens, I'm in Christ's hands and so I need not worry. It is a peace that is anchored to the gospel that in Christ we are saved. In Christ we are secure. And If you're here this morning and you have never put your faith in Jesus... You don't have that peace. You don't have the ground for that peace. I urge you, even this morning, to repent and to believe, to turn from your sin, to come to Jesus honestly and say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I cannot make myself right. I cannot fix what's broken. I need your grace. And in crying out to Him, we're called to repent and to believe. Put all of our confidence in Him. You can do that this morning. You can receive that peace peace that surpasses all understanding, peace that is anchored to Jesus and the good news that He came to bring. For those of you who are in Christ, as those in whom whom have put our, our faith in Jesus, we have an opportunity in this time to live lives that are permeated with peace. And that that will shine brightly in this world as those around us are gripped with anxiety, as those around us fear death or this loss of control, we can go into tomorrow with a deep and abiding sense of peace, a peace that will make them wonder what's different about us. And we can say, it's not me, it's Jesus. It's Jesus who loves me. It's Jesus who has saved me. It's Jesus who makes all the difference in my life. We can point people who are gripped by worry and fear and anxiety to the one who alone gives peace. We have an amazing opportunity to bear witness to Jesus in this season by living lives that are permeated by a peace that is rooted in Him, anchored in Him. There is a second implication, I believe, and that is not only can we live lives permeated by peace, but we can live lives that are primed to serve and to sacrifice. Jesus calls us. This is nothing new. This isn't a command or an instruction reserved for a time such as this. This is what we're called to do all the time. He calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love those around us, to bear witness to Him by loving those, even loving our enemies all around us. So what does that mean for us at a time like this? What does it look like for the church to love our neighbors in this season? Earlier I referred to two epidemics that swept through the Roman Empire. The second of those in 251 A.D., probably the measles. The death rate was was incredibly high. They say, historical records say, more than 5,000 people a day died in Rome alone, in the city of Rome. 
The historical record reveals at that time the church at her best. Dionysius, Dionysius of Alexander, a third century contemporary, alive in the midst of this plague, wrote this about the, the, the pagans, about those who did not know Jesus. He wrote this, At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. In stark contrast, he wrote this about the church, about Christians. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, and ministering to them in Christ. And with them, they departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with a disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. What does it mean for us to love our neighbors? What does it mean for us to follow Jesus faithfully, boldly, courageously in a time such as this? This must not be merely theoretical. Are we prepared to serve? Are we prepared to risk? Are we prepared to sacrifice? Even our lives for the sake of those who do not yet know Jesus. To live out the love of Christ in our context, in your neighborhood, in my neighborhood. Brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity. Maybe unsurpassed in our lives to bear witness to Christ. What would it look like if you and I were to go around our neighborhoods, particularly those who are more vulnerable, and just share with people that, hey, if you need anything, if you need groceries, if you need help, call us. We're here to help. We're here to love. We want to be here for you. James was sharing with me that some universities are shutting down dorms. If dorms are closed here at the U of A, there will be hundreds if not thousands of international students with nowhere to go. Will you and I open our homes and welcome people in and say, come? Stay here. Come stay with us. Are we willing to risk? Are we willing and prepared to serve? Are we willing to sacrifice for the sake of Christ? You and I do not know what's coming. We do not know what will unfold in the coming days or weeks or months. But for those who are in Christ, we know the one who does. Do you realize that none of this is a surprise to God? He's got this. We may not understand, but we don't need to. God's got this. God is good, God is present. God is at work. And in Christ, God has redeemed us. Through Christ, we are filled with the Spirit of the living God. He has promised that He will never leave us nor forsake us. That our, our names are written in the palm of His hand. And we can face tomorrow. We can face tomorrow with peace. 
We can face tomorrow with great boldness. We can seize this moment and allow Christ to shine brightly through us for the sake of making Him known. May God grant us wisdom and courage and may He fill us, saturate us with a peace that surpasses all understanding for His glory. Amen.